Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin? My name is Harper. My co-host goes by the name of Lockie. How are you, Lockie? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Harps. I was a bit offended in the earlier take you called me host, but host is much better. How are you? <laughs> yes, I am extremely pumped. And uh, who have we got today, actually? Oh, we got Drew Ginn, who Olympic rower, current uh, head of Cricket Australia High Performance, just an amazing person, amazing guest. I'm super excited to get into it, Harps. Yeah, fingers crossed you pronounced his name right as well. Let's get into it. Let's dive in. Okay, now I think we'd be perfectly happy to have this guy on if he had achieved just one of these things, but this guy is a three-time Olympic gold medalist, five-time world champion. Uh, He's got the Australian world record for a 24-hour solo ride uh, to top that off, and he's the current uh, high-performance manager at Cricket Australia. I'm delighted to welcome onto the show today, Drew Ginn. How are you, Drew? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me. There's a bit on the go behind the scenes, but but it's great to see cricket being played, and it's... um, it's been a very busy winter, as uh, everyone everyone uh, has experienced, and just unusual, right? So, if everyone looks back in thirty years and says, "What were you doing in 2020?" I'll uh, be commenting and saying I was staring at a wall for hours and hours of days. <laughs> <laughs> and de- definitely, and we really appreciate you managing to find the time. We know you're extremely busy this time of year, and especially with everything that's going on. So, I'd just like to thank you again for jumping on. Fantastic, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously. Cricket Australia has been pretty flat and for you at the moment recently and just the whole 2020, it's been a crazy year for all of us. But just, I like to uh, check in with our guests at the start of every episode. So I've just got to ask, mate, how's it gone? Uh, yeah, look, pretty well. I think the uh, the unusual thing right now is what we've sort of seen is sports a sports an antidote for yeah people's um, people's lives. And so what's really nice with um, you know, watching the AFL and then the NRL, um, other sporting codes and then cricket, um, so for me, it's just one of those reminders that, um, you know, I love sport for that very reason and uh, brings communities together and uh, gives people that sort of inspiration and sort of aspirational piece in particular. And so, um, yeah, it's been it's been a tough, tough time going through the last nine months for everyone, myself included. But I think it's actually nice to be seeing uh, a bit of normality. It's it's crazy to think what's happening in New South Wales right now, but we, we had the same experience in Victoria not all that long ago. Um, but as I say, like it's uh, it's good to see sport happening still. Yeah, definitely. I know myself. I've been wrapped that cricket's come back for all of two weeks until I stopped making runs. <laughs> but I'd love to know: Are you still involved in sport and still playing sport, Drew, or exercise? Or because I know obviously health and fitness is so important to you. Yeah, yeah, crazy. It's actually a very interesting question. So my my sort of uh, outlet right now is cycling. Uh, has been for many many years outside of sort of rowing and and surfing and stuff like that sort of thing. So um, I. Uh, Last Monday, went for a bike ride with a group for the 125th anniversary of the Melbourne to Warnable bike race, and uh, 15 of us set out from Melbourne on Monday morning at uh, 4, 4.30, I think it was, and uh, headed down to Warnable. and 10 minutes after we completed the 336-kilometre uh, ride in uh, what was ending up in 40-degree temperatures, I was in a bit of the hospital, so I had uh, a little bit of a heart scare and uh, a little bit of a kidney scare. So, so my outlet's uh, cycling. Um, the other stuff I like is just, you know, going surfing with my son and um, we're down here at the farm at the moment. So we do a lot of outdoor activities, mountain biking and all that sort of stuff as well. Whereabouts do you surf? What's your, what's your uh, secret we're, spot? We're, 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 uh, well, it's not really a secret spot. Well, we're at Cape Patterson and uh, I grew up in Inverloch in South Gippsland and uh, there's a couple of little spots around here. You know, I just love getting out the ocean beaches. It's a bit more wild and uh, you get some awesome sort of banks running at different times of the year. And so, yeah, you go and, you go and find a bank that no one knows about and it might only last for about four weeks and uh, surf it for a few days in a row and then gradually people start to hear about it. So, um, you know, it's always been a, a real pleasure as a kid, that's for sure. Yeah, how did you get into cycling? Because I know you did some uh, competitive stuff with it, and uh, we might touch you on your twenty-four hour world record uh, breaking attempt. But how did you get into it uh, after your own career, or during your own career, was it? Well, interestingly, you say that. So I I was riding BMX bikes as a kid, right? So we're going back to the eighties, right? So you guys are a little bit younger than I am. So I'm what was your favourite BMX old, track? Uh, age now. Uh, well, at the, at the at the time, it used to be simply a cross up, right? That's <laughs> as kids, it was a cross up with a little two hand single yes. in the air. So that's what it was, right? And if you ever go and watch the Ben Expanded movie, you, you sort of realise it was pretty basic, right? So, uh, <laughs> so for me, it was it was mid eighties, mid eighties. BMX was a massive sport in terms of um, 
local clubs, local tracks, all that sort of stuff. And uh, and so I got the chance with a bunch of young kids down here at Inverloch through the parents to race at the state level, race at the national level, race at the international level, went to two world championships. And um, so that was 84 and 85. Um, and so that was one of the first sports I ever did competitively as a young, young kid sort of thing. And it was just the fact that we had a local community. Um, the parents built the track. Um, once they built the track, we all just started gravitating towards it. And the interesting thing in Inverloch was the surf beach was one end of the town and the BMX track was the other end of the town. So we'd just go backwards and forwards on a daily basis. Um, and so I was I was peeling around on a hutch, a uh, 24 inch hutch and a 20 inch hutch with the two bikes I had at the time. And uh, and so yeah, it was one of those things as a kid that um, yeah, bike racing started then. And then cycling stayed as an activity that I just enjoyed doing right the way through my rowing career, which was great for physical physical fitness. So if it wasn't for rowing, we could have seen you at the X Games, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. Have you seen what those guys, do, those guys and girls do now? It's just extraordinary. Amazing. Um, some of the tricks, some of the tricks they're doing is just mind-boggling. So I watched a guy the other day do a flip where he threw the bike out and did a backflip and then pulled the bike back under him and then landed down this ramp. But he must have been thirty or forty feet in the air. And so as a kid, you know, we were doing. We were doing doubles and triples, right? So that was about, that was about our jump size. Uh, and what these, what these guys and girls are doing now, the flips and spins are just extraordinary. So, no, I wouldn't have been doing X Games. No way. Now, I'm sure your crossover would have impressed a lot of people, mate. It's simple but elegant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, mate, world championships and stuff, you don't find that in your research. Like, that's incredible, mate. Like, all the achievements you've had and being at BMX World Championships, all that kind of stuff, it's, just insane. I had no idea about that. But Lockie, I believe you want to touch on a specific uh, record that Drew wanted to break. <laughs> oh, mate, of course. So the 24-hour um, record, I think you're trying to break the 890K sent by, uh, set by Marco Barlow. I'm not too sure if that's how you pronounce his name. My pronunciation isn't uh, the best, but you did it for um, a cancer charity. Is that yeah. correct? To raise yeah, so- yeah, well, that's. I was just going to say, yeah, I know I did um, through September, I did my own little charity challenge. I tried to run 200Ks over the month, which I was happy with, but now you've just tried to shatter 890Ks in one day, so you've made me look bad, mate. <laughs> that's right. Well, you got something to aspire to, and yeah. I certainly wouldn't do 800Ks on my legs, that's for sure, if I was running. So, uh, 200Ks in a month still quite a feat, tell you that. <laughs> so tell us about it, mate. Like, What made you want to do this, and how challenging was it, especially compared to, I guess, all the rowing um, that you've done over the years, all the training? Like, Was this one of the most difficult things that you've had to do? Yeah, d- yeah difficult. Um for a few reasons. One, uh, I mean, I'll go back a step. The reason for doing it was because I'd lost my mum to cancer when I was a young kid. So um, I was about 11 at the time. And um, you don't really think about it, but you also don't think you're capable of actually making a difference when, you, when you're that young. So later on in life, obviously, you're, you're a retired athlete or, or coming to the end of your career. And so the ability to just sort of jump on the bike and spend 24 hours suffering sort of made made logical sense at the time. So, I think, so um, we raised $45,000 Drew a whole heap of people at the Brunswick Velodrome on the on the time. I was inspired some by other some endurance cyclists in Australia. Uh, Jesse Carlson in particular had just done the race across America, the Ram event. Uh, Marco Blau, who you mentioned, um, very close pronunciation by the way, uh, Slovenian. <laughs> um, he uh, he had the world record. He had a number of world records, and another guy, Christopher Strauss from Austria, had just set a world record, which was 894 kilometres. And so the attempt, the attempt was about seeing if we'd go 900 kilometres, um, jumped on the track. It was the hardest thing ever. It was scary beforehand just because of the enormity in your mind. But if I wasn't encouraged by others to have a crack at it and I wasn't doing it for a great cause, I probably would have, uh, I wouldn't have done it. But, um, yeah, what I found was the first sort of six hours, not too bad because I was accustomed to that. I'd done a fair bit of training to prepare for it. The track was the old Brunswick Velodrome track, so anyone who's ever been out there would have known that had lots of cracks, lots of lumps and all that sort of stuff. So you're going around on a time trial bike and my head's bouncing around and all that sort of stuff. So after the first six hours, felt pretty good, was on target for good speeds and then gradually just declined so much so that it was just suffering with the last six hours to go. But um, the last hour, I remember vividly, there must have been sort of 400 people that had come out to the track to just watch it and... Um, Nice little community atmosphere, had a bunch of friends there helping support the middle family and all that sort of stuff. And the last hour was just extraordinary. But I remember trying to look up and I actually couldn't get my head up high enough as I was riding the bike. And so I could only really see you know, a metre and a half to two metres ahead of the bike. But because I'd ridden the, the loop so many times, 3,000 
and six laps, I think it was, of a, of a track that was 306 metres. <laughs> and so every 34 seconds I'm going around past my teammates and, uh, you know, it was bloody tough. Hardest thing I've ever done physically, that's for sure. And, and mentally I think the most challenging thing prior to, to be committed to it and stay committed to it, but just during it, you come to realise that once you set your mind on something, it's pretty amazing what you can actually achieve. So I was certainly suffering the back end of it, that's for sure. Yeah, how do you keep yourself going through that back end when it's really like you've already done maybe 16, 18 hours hours straight of cycling? Like how do you just stay on task and not like give up? Because that sounds extraordinarily painful. I'm I'm just sore thinking about it. (laughs) Well, I I think there's a part of the thing about knowing yourself a little bit. And so my, my thing was that by committing to doing it for a good cause and by doing it in such a way that I'd actually organise people to help support and be involved and lots of stuff meant there was an extra motivation, which was I was going to see it through because it wasn't just about me anymore. The other part, and this is really interesting, if you think about computer games, like I remember playing computer games as a kid and spending days, weekends, like playing certain kinds of games. And so that concentration of just trying to get past a level or get past a, a, a battle or whatever it might have been, you know, so on the track, it was almost like every single lap, just could you do it slightly better? Could you sustain your effort? Could you hang in there? So it wasn't about riding 24 hours. It was about riding lots of 30 seconds. And every 30 seconds was just a little bit of a new challenge to things. So for me, chunking it down was really key. And just using that sort of obsessive nature of just that will to sort of see the next challenge through um, and, and whatever it takes to do it. The, the fact that it was physical on a bike is largely irrelevant. It just becomes a mental exercise of just saying, well, what's the next thing? 50 kilometres. You know, what's the next thing? One more lap of the track. What's the next thing? Blue line. You know, so so I think by doing that, it, it de compartmentalize the idea of it being 24 hours and before you know it you're sort of you're a long way through it um but you get this sort of surreal sense as well which is durations that previously seemed difficult before so like a 250k bike ride seemed like a bit of an ordeal all of a sudden i was actually sitting there saying oh the next 250ks and so it's almost bizarre how your mind resets to being 250ks is not such a big deal um so yeah, the mind's an amazing thing. And then when you push it like that, and I've heard this from different people doing extreme activities, is that you just adjust and you recalibrate. And um, But you also go back to normal life afterwards as well. So doing a ride like that now would scare the absolute pants off me. So, then, so uh, you know, you, you, you're natural like every human like everyone else. Yeah, like I think most people think, when they think Drew Dean, they think rowing. But th- that feat, breaking the Australian record, is really unbelievable. Like, just I think it was in 2015. Is that correct? Yeah. So what was it? Uh, 17, 2017. I think it was when okay. we did it on the track. Memory. Yeah. Um, you actually was... tested my memory bank then. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, about right. It's like, it's just incredible how you've done that. Like po- post your professional or your rowing career, and for such an inspirational cause. Uh, it's yeah. Uh, I can't think of any word for other than unbelievable, really. Yeah, that no, was good to do. And, and what's nice now, and this is what I love about community activities, right? Because I grew up in a little town uh, here in Inverloch, and um, you know, BMX track gets built because the parents are passionate. Um, Surf Life Saving Club gets built because parents are passionate. Um, football club gets run because parents are passionate. And um, and so when you look at the Brunswick Velodrome and you look at the Brunswick Cycling Club, you know they've had an upgrade of the facility now, new track and all that sort of stuff, and they've got more kids riding than ever before. Um, always been a great club and all that sort of stuff. But then you see some of these young talents coming through. And so that's what's really cool is you go and do an activity, but that activity is just part of the legacy of of, of that community, you know, sort of thing. So, uh, so that's what's enjoyable about it. Yeah, definitely. But as you touched touched on harps drew i think he's more he's well known for being one of the best rowers so i think it's time we uh we get to that and i'd love to know just talk a little bit about so you got started in rowing at scotch college in melbourne i'd love to know what the private um school competition is like so i went to peninsula so we were in the agsv but i know rowing was massive in aps my cousins over in adelaide they all did um rowing for their private schools they went to scotch but in adelaide and they always talked about uh head over the river in adelaide like the big regatta there and how massive it was so maybe because it's it's a really big competition isn't it the uh private school rowing yeah and and look put it in perspective i think the um the frustrating thing for me is rowing, I think, is one of the really good sports for people to have an experience of, um, partly because it's physically really challenging, demanding, so it's great to just get in there and actually do it. Um, awesome in terms of the teamwork and the camaraderie you make amongst teammates and all that sort of stuff because you can't get on the water, can't get on the, in the boat without everyone being there. So that, that bond and connection you create is, is outstanding. So sadly for me, because it's so expensive, it's it's largely exclusive to the private schools. And so... 
if my dad hadn't sent me from here to go to boarding school for four years, largely get out of trouble uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, and I hated it. I hated going to boarding school. I hated being up in Melbourne. Um, my family, no one had ever gone to a private school in my life before. So it was just a complete fish out of water. Uh, two years in, a maths teacher, Bram McLeod, grabbed me and sort of said, do you want to give rowing a go? And he was one of these guys that was an adventure guy, you know, lots of kayaking, tra- uh, trail uh, running, walking and all that sort of stuff. And so I had a bit of an affinity with him as a maths teacher um, because of the outdoors. And so when he sort of suggested it, sort of, you know, felt like give it a go. Um, give you a perspective on Head of the River, it's not the event it used to be. It's massive for the schools who go there. Um, it's it's one of the biggest events along with the head of the schoolgirls um, and, and the event that happens in Sydney as well um, for the boys and uh, boys and girls up there. So there's some of the biggest regattas that actually happen in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, but go back a few steps further. So it's now in Nagambi. It used to be in Geelong. It was previously on the Yarra River. Now, when it was on the Yarra River, it was one of three major sporting events on the calendar socially. So you had the Melbourne Cup, the VFL Grand Final, and you had the head of the river. Um, that was social events crowds of 100,000 people, but we're talking, you know, going back 80, 90, 100 years, so things. So um, so it was a social event. There was lots of gambling as well, lots of drinking, lots of socialising, lots of stuff. So then you've got this school event on the water, which is sort of pristine, and you've got all this other stuff around it. So it's certainly not like that anymore, but it's held up, you know, as, as one of the great school regattas uh, in, in the world. Um, and the schools that perform very well are, are schools that, um, you know, like I've been to Scotch, um, but others, uh, you know, tend to be good on the national scene as well. And then often tend to sort of go to Henley Regatta, which is the international version of the all-schools event. Um, you get all the UK schools, all the US schools and the and some of the Australian schools. So um, so it's a massive event, uh, but it's not quite the social event that it used to be. Yeah, but what about the training? Because I remember so my cousins, because they competed over in South Australia. It was like for most school sports, <laughs> you might train like once or twice a week. But I know for rowing, they were saying they were training like every day. They had to be up at like six o'clock in the morning to, to do strength sessions. And then later, like, it's actually for just for a school sport, the training behind it is phenomenal. Yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's it's one of the very few sports that I can think of at school level where pretty much they'll do the same number of sessions as what you would do at club level. Um, and the number of sessions is is very, very similar to what you do at an elite level. The, the only difference is, is the intensity that you can bring to it. So every young kid, 17, 18, 19 years of age, um, probably even down to 16, they're rowing as hard as they can because they're encouraged to. But um, three gym sessions a week is not unusual four on water sessions a week, uh, certainly not unusual, maybe a fifth or a sixth on a, on a weekend or on a Saturday. Um, there might be running sessions involved as well um, and, and lots of stretching and lots of stuff. So when you look at that, you've got 10 plus sessions. You've got at least 15 hours. And so if you think for school kids, doing that amount of training is extraordinary. So I know the swimmers are another kind of program that do very early mornings, a lot of them, um, but the rowers are, are pretty notorious for, for doing high volumes of training. Um, and the other part too is because they're often picking up the skill later in their teen years their body's a bit more physically developed but um they're picking up a new skill so you've got to spend a fair bit of time doing it but yeah not unusual to see 15 20 hours a week you know being done by the rowers and, and four mornings a week that are probably you know 4 30 in the morning so things start so it's extraordinary which is yeah crazy because that's on top of their schooling and just having yep. to find the time to do that but yeah i think you're you're up next harps yeah um i, I was just fairly interested in because you we were mentioning before rowing being fairly exclusive sport and the school you went to has just produced so many elite names in whatever their chosen field was, prime ministers, premiers, uh, yourself, of course, so many famous people. Uh, but I, I, I'm just interested, is there more of a, like a clear pathway towards uh, the national team or the like the, the Olympics even uh, when you're at – uh, rowing at Scotch College compared to if you're playing footy at Princess Hill High? Um, yeah, really good question. Is there a clear pathway? I think um, every sport does this sort of okay, certain levels, certain degrees. So I think the benefit in rowing, it's not so much about the school that you go to. It's about the experiences that you've had. So if you've, say, rowed at first crew level, boys or girls, and you're one of the better kids, the clubs naturally want to look at recruiting you into the club system. You know, and, and this is all, you're not getting paid for it, right? So you've rode at school, you've probably had a good program. If you've been successful, you've been a kid that's been a bit of a standout, you know, next thing you know, you get attracted to the clubs. You've also got an every state 
state institutes and academies that basically are trying to draw the very best talent in together. Um, and so then effectively what you get is the, the next wave of kids when they first leave school all go to one or two or three of the clubs. Then they compete nationally. They're probably competed nationally at school kids. So, so the pathway for any kid rowing, if you're rowing, the pathway is relatively clear that you go from school to club. Club level is club, state level, national level, and so on. Um, I think in every sport there's there's pathways, um, but the unique thing about rowing is school definitely operates completely as the rowing program. You don't have clubs operating below that that age bracket. Um, and but once you step into club, you've got a number of different levels that you can be operating at. And and even now, what you're seeing a lot is Australian kids getting opportunities to get scholarships to the US colleges because it's um, such an important sport for them. And so kids getting scholarships to Harvard or Brown or whatever it might be, Yale and all that sort of stuff is just extraordinary. So the amount of Australian kids heading off our shores to go and do a three-year degree um, is mind-boggling. So I think so, so the pathway is there, but as I say, like, like a lot of other sports, you can come from anywhere really as long as you're doing the sport. I think that's the one thing about the rowing. If you're not... If you're in a school that doesn't row, it's very hard to, to get yeah, access to Yeah, that I know. That, that's what I was thinking yeah. when you're talking about the pathways. It just shows how important the school is. So it, I pretty much like the schooling is really important for getting just people started and offering that training. When you have like sports, like, like you know, you're playing football when you're 10, you're playing cricket when you're 10, other sports like cycling, cycling clubs, there's a lot more access to. And I guess, yeah, it really, I guess it makes it a really hard sport to really get that started and to crack into. Yeah, and that's what's so. That's my frustration is is, and that's what I was saying before that because the sport is largely an expensive sport, that then means it's yeah. only private schools doing it in Australia, but in Europe. So a local club, Gavarati Rowing Club, where we used to train uh, year in year out for you know two or three months. Um, Northern Italy, the local club is a community club. So effectively, what you have is they invite all the kids down from the community. It operates during summer, soccer's sort of through the winter period. Um, and so all these kids come down and there's ages from six all the way to, you know, 26. Um, and they're getting out in the water, but it's not related to the school at all. It's related to the community. And so then what you see is in Italy, you see these kids just coming through through a community club. And that's what happens in other sports in Australia, like football, soccer and you know, cricket, as you describe. Um, and so that's the frustration in Australia, I think, is the sport's not accessible that way. Um, but certainly it's, it's, it is available to people, but it, it's got to be probably more welcoming, doesn't it? Yeah, and now I think we'll go, so we'll go to the 1996 Olympics. I'd love to know, so sort of like, how did you feel? So obviously in 92, the team um, won a gold medal and you were replacing Andrew Cooper, was it? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, in the in the awesome force. And like, did you feel the pressure of like already going to an established team and like having to back up the gold medal performance of 92, being probably the youngest member of the team at the time as well? Yeah, simple answer to that is yes. <laughs> um <laughs> I was enthusiastic. I was passionate. I was probably pretty, uh, pretty full of bravado in terms of giving it a crack. Um, did I know what I was getting myself in for? Not really. Um, and probably that where the pressures mounted were, um, yeah, just doing some some things that were almost going to derail uh, sort of my career and stuff. A couple of big nights out with friends and things like <laughs> that, even overseas. Yeah. And I share this because it's important to understand is is the outlet for me was to connect socially with someone who wasn't necessarily in the boat in the team and all that sort of stuff who could just get me as a person and uh, we could just hang out for, you know, three, four, five hours or whatever it might have been and just um, share old stories, you know, so things so and just have a bit of fun. And so that for me was the the, the pressure valve. Um, problem is when you take it to excess, it, it, it gets you in trouble, so things. So so I think there was a mess, mess, massive amount of pressure there. I think being roughly seven to ten years younger than the other guys. Um, How old were you at the time? Obviously, I was uh, I was twenty when I first joined them, and then twenty one when we um, twenty twenty one when we won the game. So things. So um, yeah, and the guys had been there before, as you sort of mentioned. So they'd had success. So for me, in my eyes, it was like they've had success, so they know what they're doing. I certainly haven't had success, so I have no idea what I'm doing. But I've got to appear like I'm sort of confident and all that sort of stuff. So on the inside, I was pretty anxious and stressed a lot of the time. But um, uh, I'm a pretty enthusiastic sort of person. So generally what I was doing was just bouncing back even after failures or things going wrong. And the next day, it was almost like, you know, wipe the mind of that and just give it another go. So, um, but yeah, got myself into a bit of strife a few times. um, But clearly... (laughs) Yeah, not always coping, um, but uh, but also I remember sitting there with a the team psych at one stage, and the question was, "Why are you doing this?" Effectively, you know, what do you really want out of this? And 
And I realised that it wasn't actually about winning gold medals. It wasn't about, you know, getting a tracksuit or being a part of the awesome foursome. Um, it was about that real sense of challenge. And so I, I like the idea of this was something I never thought I could do, right? So so the ability to be supported by others, to be up for something that I never thought I could do, um, even though if others sort of believed it was possible, um, was that sense of challenge. So once I realised it wasn't about the outcome and I started realising it was about that, that real enjoyment of the challenge, then it made a big difference. It took a bit of pressure off, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I guess like, because we're both young, like Harper's only 17, I'm only 22. I can't imagine you're 20. I'm sure anybody that's been that age knows that we're not at our most mature. We make a lot of mistakes <laughs> and you have a lot more pressure than what the what the average 20-year-old would have to deal with, you know, representing your country, you know, being part of such a strong team and having to back up that performance. But it sounds like you, the attitude is learn from your mistake, like learn from your mistakes, which is saying that has helped you, carried you forward. Yeah, uh, and I think that's that's probably probably the best advice I can provide is, you know, if, if I was encouraged to do anything, it was to keep trying um, and keep giving things a go and, and to focus a bit more on putting my effort into things, you know. So so having good people around me who rewarded or recognised or incentivised, I suppose, in that regard, the effort was really key. It didn't mean that there weren't consequences for making mistakes or stuffing up and all that sort of stuff, but there was a tolerance. And, and what I really liked, our coach at the time, Noel Donaldson, was awesome you know how you go through school and you've got the one or two key teachers who you really, you know, you connect with and a heap of other teachers you might not connect with at all. Yeah, and, and also you <laughs> find, it really, you, you find yeah. it right? So you find it really frustrating. <laughs> so so I had one or two teachers through school who just really resonated with me when I was at Scotch. And they were teachers who either spent time with me in the physical, you know, uh, space, being rowing or other adventure sports. So you had normal conversations with them. And, and what they always encouraged was be true to yourself. You know, which is what I really like. And, and it seems like a cliche, but being true to myself was I was enthusiastic, I was energetic, um, I was willing to have a crack. And the whole thing was just keep doing that. Like don't don't hold back from who you are. And every time I became sort of self-conscious of trying to do things that were right by others, that's when I'd become restrictive and make even bigger mistakes. So Noel Donaldson eventually as the awesome foursome coach was, I want you to be Drew. I don't want you to be anyone else. I want you to be Drew. And whatever that Drew is, we'll deal with it. And so there was a tolerance in that and, and I suppose a care for the person that went beyond just your physical talent, which was, um, you know, the thing that really resonated with me. Oh, definitely. I feel like I'm I, I sort of like, I'm a bit like that. I'm very much a high energy person. I'm always I'm always talking. I'm always up and about. I'm always excited. I'm always animated. And I feel like, yeah, but it's but it's really beneficial in sport. You need people like that. They can sort of, they can have a laugh. They're always happy because it's, it's a tough time at training. So you need to make it fun so it's enjoyable. So it's an crucial part of the team yeah and i think you're up next harps yeah like the, that gold medal uh, i'm not sure if we touched on it specifically but that just must have been like the biggest high ever uh just <laughs> like that moment <laughs> we're winning that race and standing on the podium belting out the national anthem uh just would have been amazing but uh we'll maybe touch on the gold medals as a whole uh, in a sec but that followed up by the just devastation of missing out on the 2000 Olympics because of a back injury just uh, a few weeks prior. How did you deal with that and, like, your mental health? How did you cope with that? Yeah, that must have been so tough because we had Alison Annan, the, um, who played hockey, and she spoke about how, like, special the 2000 Olympics was, like, the best that she'd been to, like, like even – as a non, like she's Australian, representing Australia at home, like how amazing it was. So, mate, that, that must have been like the one that I think every person like wants to go um, represent their country in in the home Olympics. So, it must have been so tough. Yeah, it was. Um, it's probably been a thing that I've wiped from a memory bank for a little bit now. Um, interestingly, what you said of describing. So, I'll contrast it for you, so it makes sense. We've got Christmas coming up, right? So it's not far away, a few days. Uh, 96 was like 100 Christmases all packed into one, right? <laughs> and, and I remember sitting there, uh, yeah, I say sitting there, sitting there in the boat across the finish line, waving my hands just like ridiculously, stupidly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it just felt complete euphoria for it was, it was unwrapping something that I, I sort of knew what was in there. I anticipated what was in there. I'd probably, you know, checked it out weeks in advance if mum and dad had it under the tree or whatever it is, you know. But all of a sudden it's that that, that joy of actually opening up for the first time and realising, wow, I've got exactly what I wished for. Um, so that was 96. And, and, and you've got a few things that really resonate there, which is, you know, you're holding the medal and you're finally sort of sitting there saying, I've never even seen one of these. Like, it's, it's bizarre. Like, you watch all this footage of Olympic Games 
and you see medals flashed up and all that sort of stuff, but you, you, you're not actually holding one yourself and you're not close to them um, and the weight of them and all that sort of stuff. So, and then the national anthem, which we sang really, really poorly, but there's just all those little <laughs> things, right? Jump forward four years and all of a sudden I'm standing there uh, on the sidelines, uh, you know, watching the, the, the race that I'd prepared for um, coming down. And so um, I was struck with sort of being pissed off frustrated, angry, um, angry at the world, angry at myself, uh, all this sort of stuff, uh, disillusioned a fair bit. And um, and then as the race was coming down, I remember sort of having this moment where it was like far out, I'm I'm thinking about me here, you know, sitting so, and the, the switch that flipped for me was all of a sudden watching James, my crewmate, and a good friend, Matthew Long, who was now the reserve filling in, rowing the boat, and he'd been rowing it for seven weeks because that's when I got injured. And so, this switch just went bang and it was like the Sydney Olympic Games went from being like I was frustrated to all of a sudden like this joy of seeing if they were going to get a result, you know, and putting all my energy into being a spectator, right? So, and this is hard. Like if you love doing what you do and then you're sitting on the sidelines, being a spectator is really uncomfortable. Yeah, was, was um, there ever that selfish thought of like, like were you supporting your teammates but was there in the back of your mind ever, I'm, sh- I'm sure you, you might not be like this, but you're like you don't want them to win without you? Or was it always no complete support of the team? Because that's it's completely human to feel that way. Yeah, I think I think what I felt was not so much didn't want them to succeed without me, but I resented the fact that I wasn't in the boat. Yeah. Right, so so it wasn't so much that I wanted them not to have a great experience. Um, but I remember when I first got injured, my hope was that the boat could keep going. Yeah, you know? and so because you put so much energy into the into the pair that we're in the pair, James and I, I, I wanted to see the pair still perform. Yeah, you know, irrespective of me being in it, and. Um, but I resented the fact that I got injured, you know, and, and where that resentment was really quite challenging was I thought it was because of other reasons like the gym program or the coaches oh. or the physio and all this sort of stuff. So what it took me probably two years to really wake up and realise that I, I I got injured. I got myself injured, right? So, and that's what I think when you when you fail, it's, it's learning how to take responsibility for the failure and realising that, you know, if there, was, if there was no way, like if you have that, if someone's hit you in a car, and there's nothing you could have done about it, right? Well, then there should be no resentment there. There should be no harsh judgment there. But if you're doing something that causes the injury that you can look back on and go, actually, I did this, this, and this, and that actually contributed to it, then take responsibility for that. You know, so in, in rowing, I got injured in the gym by being stupid, by showing off with my two mates who were in the gym lifting heavy and heavier weights, and I eventually ruptured this in my back. So so I had a resentment, but eventually when I worked out that um, – yeah, you know, I could take some responsibility, which is if I had to listen to myself in the gym and been a bit smarter about it, then I probably wouldn't have been injured and then I'd probably have made the Olympic Games. And so then turning that corner was really important, but that took a long time and that was hard, um, hard as a young athlete because, yeah, the home Olympic Games was everything we aspired to. When I left school in 1992 and the idea and the prospect of being an athlete, um, everything they talked to us about 93, 94, 95, leading up to 96 was the 2000 Games. So, so I didn't even think I was going to make 96. And so then when I made 96, it was like, oh, this is amazing. But I was always focused on 2000 because it was the home Olympic Games and every Australian athlete wanted to go there. So, so resentment for the injury and then just frustration that I'd, I'd blown an opportunity. But that's, that's life. You learn from it and then you, you get better from it, hopefully, if, you, if you're smart enough, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, I know we'd both love to go so much deeper into all the rowing stuff, but we've got a few other things we want to touch on before we wrap up. But just one more question on the rowing, a bit of a broad one. So you've had all these fantastic uh, particular moments as a team, as an individual, even all the gold medals, uh, Athens, the next Olympics, bouncing back there. Have you got a particular favourite moment from your rowing career that really stands out to you that that's just number one in your mind? Ooh, okay. Uh I have been asked about favourite races before and I've never really answered this particularly well. But if I was to sort of say what first came to my mind as you were asking that question, it'd probably be the 99 World Championships. And I'll explain why. So St. Catharines, Canada, um, the year before the Olympic Games in, in Sydney. So we just talked about the Sydney experience. Um, but we had a race where James and I had a race where we managed to get a long way in front of the field at the 1500 metre mark, which is three quarters of the way through the race. We race over 2000 metres. We're seven seconds up the 1500 meter mark. But what was really special about that race was it was probably the first time I really was aware of being in the zone or in the moment as an athlete. Um, and, and we all have these moments where time just disappears and all that sort of stuff. But I remember sort of thinking that 1500 meters of that race, I was just there. Like I wasn't thinking, thinking about post race, I wasn't thinking about the result. 
And so 1,500 metres worth of, you know, call it 150 strokes at that time, um, just felt like completely dialed in. And so what I loved about it was you had fatigue, but it didn't hurt. Yeah, you had stress, but it wasn't a worry. Um, and and then the ability to have the boat operating just such a level with James and every sort of time we I made a call, because I'm sitting behind him making calls and he's sitting in front of me driving the rhythm, every single time we made a call, it just worked, you know, sort of thing. So, so that's not the Olympic Games. It's not the major events. Yeah, it was it was one of the regattas along the way, but it was just sublime in terms of uh, the performance, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, well, I think something that I just have taken out of your story is just how important it is to learn from mistakes, that mistakes are going to happen throughout your career, but just how you respond, which is the important thing, which is such an important learning from everything, and I, we really appreciate you talking about that. And now we'll transition into your life, I think, after rowing. So now you're the current high-performance manager at uh, Cricket Australia. I'd love to know, how how did you um, go into that? What made you decide to go into cricket as well as the fact that have you found it tough transitioning from rowing to cricket where cricket's a very much, it's a stubborn environment in which um, a lot of the jobs are filled by ex-cricketers and it sort of tends to be filled by people that have played cricket for Australia and you coming from rowing, did you find it difficult to transition? Um, what I, uh, yes and no, I suppose, um I didn't know much about the sport. That's the first part. So uh, you talk about making mis- making mistakes or owning your failures. Uh, I remember vividly meeting the head coach down in Tasmania because I went to Tasmania to do the high performance manager's role down there first three years ago and then got the CA role, Cricket Australia role, uh, 12 months ago. Uh, and the way they were talking and the way even he talked, you know, about bowling or about batting and all this sort of stuff is like, well, this is straight over my head. So, you know, you talk about going to another country in a foreign language, I, I felt like I'd just been th- thrown on Mars and there was a bunch of Martians talking gobbledygook and I had no idea what was going on. Um, but then what I, what I came to appreciate was, and this is where the benefit of having someone come in who doesn't know anything, I just asked lots of dumb questions and uh, lost, asked lots of questions. So I've just been eyes and ears open for three years learning. Um, and I certainly wouldn't claim to, to know everything about the sport because I've never really played it. So that, that real um, kinesthetic understanding is not there. I think the sport's been reasonably welcoming to me um, as a person, and um, but but not welcoming in terms of just you know you can get away with doing anything and you can say anything and all that sort of stuff. But rather you know we appreciate someone coming in from outside who's had experience and um, uh, success. But you have to learn, earn your way. You have to earn the right to to have an opinion or whatever it might be. And so I just took my time. I learned from mistakes in rowing as head coach. Um, and, and developed an understanding for just listening more, asking more questions, um, developing a, a perspective that way. Um, but I now I now don't reference myself being from outside cricket, um, which is interesting. So things come through in your language, don't they, when you talk? And so it's been it's been three years. Um, I certainly feel like I've been way out of my depth plenty of times, uh, not just from not knowing cricket, but also because what I've been managing budget wise and size of staff and all that sort of stuff has been something I hadn't had an experience before. When I was when I was rowing head coach after transitioning as an athlete, I had 14 coaches on the national team, but I wasn't directly managing them every day of the year. So it was only looking after them when we went overseas together. And my job was to connect with them while we're in Australia. So when you then have 30 staff at Tasmania or 45 staff in Cricket Australia, it's a really different prospect. And so um, the same thing being, you make mistakes. And I think the key one for me is just learning how to own those mistakes whenever you make them as a leader and you know, keep having the conversations with people around you. And the relationship is always the key, right? So if you have a good relationship with people, there's a tolerance there. If you have a terrible relationship with people, there's not a tolerance there. So um, there's been a huge learning curve. I think what you've described about cricket is outsiders coming in. Yeah, 15, 20 years ago was a, was a really a no-go zone. Um, but I think there's been a lot of people that have now um, in, been embraced by the sport. And so it's made it a lot easier for me. The way I got involved was a CEO in Tasmania wanted someone who was different, uh, yeah, wanted really? someone from outside the sport. So so that made a difference inviting me in, that's for sure. Yeah. What if you, you – know, you're in a pretty high position at Cricket Australia. What, what have you changed uh, in the uh, kind of whole scheme of things on the cricket scene? Because cricket, as Lockie mentioned – like, like anything, can be pretty stubborn. Some people might not want to change. Uh, there was a bit of a public thing with Mitch Stark going on. Is, are there particular things that you've changed and kind of um, just shaken it up? Yeah, well, we've, um, I wouldn't say changed so much as we've, we've focused more on sort of some key priorities. And so for me, it's about we, my job in the first six months was to get around the States learn as much about what they thought the issues were because um, I'd come from being in the state for two years being Tasmania. So 
I had my own frustrations with Cricket Australia and I had my own frustrations with the overall Australian cricket system. So, so it wasn't so much change. What we've probably tried to do is to work better in the system collaboratively um, because that was one of the frustrations the states had with CA. Um, and we've done that then through sort of system leadership, what we've called system leadership, which is people thinking about the overall system, not just your program and not just your state. And so encouraging my staff to really think more broadly uh, about the game and about the system is key. But then the other one too is really long-term thinking. So we've had lots of conversations with our, our team about, you know, 15-year plans and stuff. And so when you sort of say 15-year plan in Olympic Games, that's like three Olympic cycles. And so it seems hard to do because everyone wants to focus on the next Olympic cycle four years away. But if you think about the eight years and then the 12 years, you actually start to think about the young kids you're influencing right now and then what they'll be like in that time. So, so I think what I'm trying to help influence rather than change is get people thinking about the 15-year-old kid now is going to be the star playing for Australia when they're 30 in 15 years. So everything we do now can either have a positive or negative influence on how they behave how they carry themselves, how they think about the game, um, how they perform, um, how they develop their skills, how they learn, all that sort of stuff. So that's key. The other one is the mental health piece. So we put a lot of effort into sort of just understanding that mental health is really important. And so we've now got a mental health lead. So that's been something that I've really tried to drive for. But the system was telling us it was important. Um, and then coach development and player development, staff development, umpire development. So I'm really passionate about developing people. And, and that's strategic. And often when we're under pressure, that's the first thing we cut away is we stop doing the development work because we get to the immediacy of what's the task, what's the job we've got to do. So, so my job is largely getting people to stay strategic on the long-term stuff, uh, knowing that it'll pay dividends for us down the track um, while we're still delivering cricket. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't say changes, but certainly influences is probably uh, what I've got there. And the other one is being world-leading. We're trying to think about the idea of what world-leading looks like for us, even though the Australian team is trying to win every format and be the most dominant team in the world, the actual Australian cricket system, what does world leading look like? And so we're just asking that question all the time and sometimes we get answers which um, are really quite interesting as to people sort of go, I don't really know why we do this. And it's like, well, if we don't know why we're doing it, we don't know how it's impacting being world leading, why would we continue? Um, and as you say, tradition's hard thing to change, um, but ultimately people I think are encouraged about um, improving things if it's going to make the system overall better and make their situation better, that's for sure. Well, it sounds like Cricket Australia is in very safe hands and the performances on field are a testify to that. And I think Harper and I can both agree that we love how the, the uh, mental health initiative and the support that players are now getting through that and p- development not only of players but of um, umpires and obviously the pathway as 15 year olds like you're taking a real holistic approach which is just really great to hear so that's really exciting for us and I look forward to watching the Australian cricket team continue to uh, succeed in the future but we have our last little question and we'd like to we like to answer this sort of like if you had to give a life philosophy just a real short sharp one what would your life philosophy be? Oh optimism optimism just uh, I think have an unusual sense of optimism about what's possible um Optimism about people, people around you. Um, I think even, you know, you use a situation like the pandemic, it's very easy for people to get into a very pessimistic, negative mindset, and it's hard. I, I don't disagree, but, you know, life could be worse. Um, Definitely. Is, I've heard that sort of said all the time. And so I think just being able to have an optimistic outlook and realise that, that the best way to engage in improving things is, is to connect with others. Um, but you've got to connect to yourself first, you've got to have that real understanding of what you're about um, and that takes a long time and so I think being optimistic, knowing when you're in and out of that sort of headspace is really key and knowing how you're engaging with people and I've always sort of said that if I'm going to jump in a boat with someone, I want to be in a boat with someone that sort of thinks that anything's possible. Um, don't like necessarily being in a rowing boat where, you know, there's limitations, there's barriers and there's resistance all the time and so um, for me just finding that optimism inside myself is probably key but also with others as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that you could, Harper and I are definitely optimistic. Like we saw the pandemic, we saw that, oh, well, we had this extra time on our hands now. So started a podcast like myself. I did a charity run because I had that extra time not playing sport to do that. So I definitely feel like, yeah, that's such an important thing to do that. Um, it, like issues like that create opportunities to sort of do that, improve upon yourself. I know a lot of people are doing things like cooking and music or whatever. So yeah, I feel, feel like this year's definitely been a year of growth and which comes with that optimism mindset but now it's a time that everybody's been waiting for it's a famous where do we begin harps take it away okay so uh you you notice that we've got a bit of time before you have to head off i would love to touch more on your career drew uh but 
Uh, we've got a famous last segment uh, on this podcast. It's called the Where Do We Begin Quiz. So uh, I've got five questions. Uh, I'm going to pit you, Drew, against Lockie. Uh, and they're all very, very vaguely related to your career, Drew. They've got some connection uh, to your life and career in some very vague way. Uh, I can see how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> your, your name is your buzzer, so just go in with Lockie or Drew, and I'll start with question one. Uh, so, of course, you're a Scotch College boy. So question one is, despite leaving at age 13, Australia's fourth Prime Minister, George Reid, went to Scotch College. Uh, I just need you to tell me, in which decade was he the country's leader? Drew. Drew. Go for it. 1940. I'm going to have a guess. 1940s is incorrect, I'm afraid. Mm. Lockie, do you want to have a shot? Lockie, uh, I'll go 1920. 1920s is also incorrect. The first Prime Minister came around in 1901, and George Reid was around in the 1900s, 04 to 05. Oh, Oh, we were close, Lockie. We were close. (laughs) Only 20 years old. Anyway, we'll move on to question two. Uh, So question two, this is the closest to the pin one. It's still nil all. So closest to the pin. Uh, So the Gin or Gin Academy is an all-boys public high school located in Cleveland, Ohio. So in terms of the most populated U.S. states, can you tell me, where does Ohio rank? Damn. Lockie, I'll go. Lockie, go for it. It's closest to the pin. Um, I'll go 12. 12th is incorrect, but it's closest to the pin, so I'll give Drew a shot. Oh, I'm going to go 7. 7th is absolutely spot on. He's got oh. absolutely correct. It's 7th. They've got a population of 11,689,100 as of December 2020. And I know a few of those people in Ohio listen to the podcast. Got a big listener base there. Love it. But anyway, we'll move on to question three. Uh, Drew's up 1-0. Uh, we'll go to question three. So uh, do you remember the date uh, of your 2008 gold medal race win? This isn't the question. It's Damn. Just... Oh, Drew. It's not the question. <laughs> yes, it's not the question. Uh, August, I think, August? Yeah, it was August. It was 16th of August, 2008. So uh, there you go. this question's related to that date. So I know that. Okay. There you go. Uh my question is, uh, which Katy Perry song, which is now viewed as the beginning, uh, perhaps, of LGBT, LGBT awareness in pop music, was number one in Australia as our guest Drew Ginn won his coxless pair race on the 16th of August, 2008? Lockie. Lockie. <laughs> Can level the scores here. Was so Katy Perry's song, okay. now viewed as the beginning of LGBT awareness in pop music. Firework. Firework is incorrect. Mm. Do you want to have a shot? I think I know. You do I actually don't sh- even think I know Katy Perry song. I'm trying to think of names. You strike me yeah. as a huge Katy Perry fan, mate. Yeah. That's a shock. Top of my list. She played at the World Cup recently for the Women's World Cup. Yeah. Was that, that was actually a really <laughs> okay. good performance. I, I really enjoyed that. That was good. Was that the song? I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lyrics that come to mind. I, I reckon. Oh, I think geez. she performed this at the Cricket World Cup final. I think I know what it is. Well, lucky you're buzzed out, mate. So unless Drew gets yeah, it wrong, yeah, I, I have I have no idea, and I'm one up, so uh, yeah. I'm not going to be conservative. Yeah. Um, I don't even know lyrics of her songs. Was it well, Teenage Dream? Hearts? Hearts? It's not Teenage Dream. Oh. It is I Kiss the no. Girl. No, oh. I Kiss the Girl. Do you remember that one? Shouldn't own that yes. one. I should have yeah. known that one. It's a big one. Yeah. Um, that my, was my like her first album, I believe. Debut single. Uh, but we move to question four. It's still 1-0 Drew. Bit of a low-scoring slog, this one. Uh, so qu- question four. Uh, can you tell me, what is the mass of eggs contained in the ovaries of a female fish or shellfish more commonly known as? <laughs> Drew. Drew. Pouch. Pouch is incorrect. Just pass. I don't want to embarrass myself. I'll tell you, it's row. Oh, row. <laughs> row. There you go. What <laughs> is going on here? <laughs> this, is, this is a shocking by the both of you. I've got to say, but you're like, making me cry here, guys. Tears <laughs> <laughs> um, to my eyes. Um, Drew's one nil down, but I've got to say, Lockie's still Optimistic. in the game because famously, our question five is who am I? Question. So I'm going to go down for five points, all the way down to one point with a series of clues, and all leading to who I am. Uh, so. 
And once you buzz in and get it wrong, you can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. So Lockie's just got to get two points to win it outright. So the five-point clue. That's what I see. The five-point clue. I was born on the February the 22nd, 1975, in Culver City, California. Next. Next one. Four-point clue. I've appeared in 49 feature films and won a Golden Globe for my role in the 2009 made-for-television film Grey Gardens. No idea. Next. I'm moving, on, I'm moving on to the three-point clue. A child prodigy, I hosted Saturday Night Live on the 20th of November, 1982, aged seven. 20th of November, your birthday, I believe, Drew. Aged seven? Yeah. Who's that? I'll move on to the two-point clue. Bloody in 19, hell. In 1991, and at 16 years old, I released an autobiography, Little Girl Lost, detailing my much publicised and controversial, controversial childhood. Lockie? Spears? Oh. Say that again, Lockie? Uh, I think um, Drew said Spears. Oh, Drew said Spears. Is that your answer, Drew? (laughs) Yeah, but I didn't say Drew beforehand, Lockie. (laughs) Uh, I I said, Lockie, I'll go Drew Barrymore. (laughs) Drew Barrymore? (laughs) Is absolutely correct. That's well huge. done. That is huge. Well done, Lockie. That is good call. That, that is a very good call. So Lockie's come from behind and won that 2-1. Well done, Lockie. Big round of applause. Let's give a hand to Lockie. Well done. Well big, done. Big What's life five hundred rounds the race. Losing to Lockie. Lockie doesn't win any quizzes, mate. That's embarrassing. Like, just took off the end there, didn't you? Hey? <laughs> yeah. Hey, like, just keep it to the end. That's what we all want. But, uh, Drew, I know you're a very busy man, so uh, we'll let you go. I'll go say thank you very much for coming on the show. It was uh, delightful uh, to have a chat with you today. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for that, Drew. It was so much fun to have you on. I really enjoyed that. How about yourself, Harps? Yeah, yeah, it was great. We actually did this one late last year, actually, so it's a bit old, but still uh, very fresh and very entertaining. I am almost certain of for all of you, but uh, you'll notice that Drew didn't nominate a charity because we recorded this quite a while ago, so we're kind of nominating a charity on behalf of him, that's connected to him, but it's still close to our hearts. So, Lockie, what's the charity? So, it's Tour de Cure Australia, and we got this straight from his LinkedIn page that he's an ambassador for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Drew, if you listen to this, thanks for putting that up on your LinkedIn. It'd be very good if you could donate because these guys over here at Tour de Cure, they raise, like, vital funds to support, like, researchers, surgeons, clinicians uh, who all dedicate their lives to finding a cure for cancer, and they do all kinds of challenging inspirational events like Drew's uh, world record attempt uh, 24-hour cycling thing that he mentioned. Um, yeah, Lockie, anything else to say about yeah, it? Yeah, just, just amazing. So since t- just 2007, uh, Tour de Cure has ra- raised more than $30 million. It's funded more than 250 cancer projects. It's achieved 18 scientifically recognised cancer breakthroughs and it has educated more than 81,000 Australian school children about cancer prevent uh, preventation. It's just an amazing foundation. And again, super excited that this can be our charity of the weekend. We get to support this cause. Yeah, yeah, and a massive amount of that $30 million is raised through small donations, even $1, $2, $5. So if you donated just a tiny amount or a big amount, if you want, to uh, tourdecure.com.au, that's T-O-U-R-D-E-C-U-R-E.com.au, you can do- go donate there, and it would mean a lot to us and Drew, I'm sure, as well, and everyone involved with the charity. And of course, we'd love to thank our listeners again for uh, joining us for the ride this week and sticking through. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I like that. Join for the ride. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening. Back next week.